Welcome to CEO Insights, a podcast on influence and negotiation in which CEOs of international companies come to share their approach and experience of negotiation and influence. I'm your host, Ludovic Tanron. I'm a business and strategic partnerships developer, lawyer, expert negotiator, and the author of the master key, Unlock Your Influence and Succeed in Negotiation. I have the pleasure to welcome today Greg Goff, an absolute authority in the oil and gas business. Greg is a former president and CEO of Endeavor and former vice chairman of Marathon Petroleum, both companies being in the Fortune 500 list of biggest American corporations. Greg was listed among the world's best performing CEOs in 2018 by the Harvard Business Review. He now sits at the board of ExxonMobil, one of the 10 largest U.S. corporations by revenue. Hi, Greg. It's a real honor to have you with us for this third episode of CEO Insights. Thank you for accepting this invitation from San Antonio. Uh, I'll go straight to the first question. Uh, You've had a tremendous career um, made of great negotiations of all sorts. Um, You obviously have to be a good negotiator, to be a good leader. Um, how did you build yourself as a negotiator? Um, was it on the job like most people from books where you mentored? Well, first of all, Ludo, it's nice to be able to talk to you and share some different perspectives and backgrounds. So when I want, first of all, I just would tell you about my career that I actually feel fortunate for the opportunities that I've had. When I look back on the different opportunities, I just I'm grateful that I got to do meet the people, go to the places and do the things that I was able to do. So when I look back at around negotiating, I think there are three things that stand out to me. I think the first thing is most of what I learned was from experiences. I think as my career developed and progressed, they became more complex in some cases. So when you look back at the things that you did, the first way I learned was just from pure experience. The second way was uh, also just from observing people. So also from an experiential standpoint, but probably more importantly, sometimes not being directly involved and watching how both parties conducted the negotiation. And I think finally, which I think is always very, very successful is, to go back and particularly on maybe critical or difficult negotiations and to reflect back on it and learn what did you do well, what didn't go so well, and then why, and and just try to learn from that for the future. To me, that's probably, as I look back on different types of negotiations that I've been involved in, that's probably what I would attribute my both what I've learned and, and the, the approach that I've used in many cases. You were talking about self-awareness, basically, at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Acting of what you did. And you said that uh, you were observing uh, negotiation. Is this someone um, that you uh, kind of um, admired or someone who has been a great inspiration for, for, for you in your career eventually? Probably just the opposite. It's probably... And maybe it's just how I am personally. It seems like I've learned more by observing things that actually didn't go that well and what not to do versus what to do. And so um, it wasn't as much having someone that I thought did 
outstanding jobs. I mean, you can pick up little tidbits of something to do in a, you know, in a negotiation from all sources. But I think for me personally, I probably learned a lot from what not to do from observing than as much what I did to do that had a more, that had a bigger impact. Small things I learned by what people did and maybe the cumulative value of all those small things was very, very uh, impactful to me. But I think sometimes it was a fundamental flaw or mistake that someone made that I learned a lot from. That's great. So do you think that when you uh, deal with people in the oil and gas uh, sector, um, you you deal with these people differently than in another sector, meaning that you, you need specific skills to negotiate in that sector. Is it a tough sector? Is it different from any industrial sector? You negotiate differently? I think it, from, my, from my own experience in oil and gas and just really the whole uh, energy space, you probably need to break the, the uh, negotiations into two different types of negotiations some which I'd call maybe more basic routine negotiations that probably in all types of business, maybe everywhere in the world you get involved in. I think the more complex things that you can do in the energy business are probably maybe a little bit different because the impact is far greater. So it could have an impact a country. For example, on you know, so in in the geopolitics and just more complexity, I think primarily just because of energy and the importance of energy. Well, and this isn't on all negotiations, but I think when you're if you're in the uh, energy business, you're trying to you're in a country or you're going into a new country. There's there's just a lot of complexity with what you're trying to do because of the impact that it has. It can it can be the impact on the environment the political aspects of it, the impact on the people and how you bring people in from the country to be part of the business. And therefore, those, what I would call maybe more complex negotiations in the energy space absolutely require a very, very different approach. Would you say that it's it's obviously a political sector? I would imagine that you have also the pressure of government, including maybe your own government sometime, to to close some deals. or negotiate a certain way, is, is that right? Yeah, I think in, in some cases, depending on, on what you're trying to do, the, uh, it can impact both like the host government and you know, myself being an American, the American government. And, and we can maybe talk about that in a few questions here about some of the things, but there definitely is political uh, implications to in the energy space, just because of the critical nature of energy to everyone, everywhere, in all parts of their life. Yeah, and uh, I would imagine sometimes it can make political, political sense, but no business sense at all. Uh, right. it, it can happen, I would imagine. Um, yeah, that's the unfortunate part. It can be, uh, probably you can think this makes really good business sense. It makes good economic sense. It creates a lot of value for everyone. But then there may be maybe some ideological aspects of it that can get in the way and, and, and make it not turn out the way you would like it to turn out. As I mentioned earlier, you've negotiated a great number of deals 
in your career with commercial partners, even unions, foreign governments, um, to name a few. Is this a memorable negotiation from which you've learned a great lesson? Absolutely. Probably when I look back at the different things that I've been involved in, probably the thing that I, I learned the most from that was maybe one of the most challenging and difficult things, and it also didn't succeed, is I was involved a number of years ago. Our company had, was a major investor in Venezuela, and the Venezuelan government nationalized the assets of the company, and the company was a, I'm, this is a multi-billion dollar investment, and then and you could see things kind of brewing along the way that it was going to, things were kind of going to hit a point where things weren't going to work out that well. But, and then one day, the government of Venezuela nationalized the assets of not just the company that I work for, but, but a lot of other companies. And at that time, because it was such a critical part of the business of the company, the CEO of the company tried to negotiate a settlement with the government and uh, wasn't successful. And then because I had done business in, in Venezuela and I, I knew a lot of the people in, in the country and he asked me to try to find a resolution to this. And so I, uh, and, and the message I would probably say about this particular negotiation that was the most, the thing that I found most interesting is when you, when you think about it, so the CEO of the company has been trying to negotiate a settlement with the country where the assets of the company, many billions of dollars, have been expropriated. And then when that doesn't work, he asks you to go in. And so they're already used to dealing with the top person in the company. And so the thing that I did and, uh, was to, to be successful at the time I felt like I almost needed to recalibrate everything because he was no longer like the front person. He'd asked me to do that. So I had to make sure they were comfortable dealing with me, first of all, because it's easy to say, well, I, I can just go to the, you know, the top person in the company if I need to. And uh, that's not what we wanted to be able to do. We wanted to be able to try to do that. So we, uh, I think we did three things that really helped make a difference. So the first thing is we created a framework for the negotiations. And that was in an effort to recalibrate, to get new players involved and, and, and maybe to get a little bit of a different focus on the path that we wanted to do. So the, the, actually the first step was to create a framework to have negotiations and have, in this case, the Venezuelan government agree to that framework because that way I felt you could uh, recalibrate the, the negotiations. And that actually worked really, really well. It was this, in, in a way, the reason it worked so well is we kept it very simple. And, uh, and it had what I always believe is important in negotiations is principles. And it had a number of principles. And I don't recall exactly today how many principles, but it was probably somewhere like six or eight principles. So it wasn't like a long list of all these things that were things that were, at least that we believe were very, very important. And we wanted to get 
the, uh, the Venezuelans to believe that they were also important to them. And uh, so the first step was creating this framework, which worked out, actually worked out really, really well. The second thing, which I think was a kind of a tipping point in being able to have the negotiations because of the background, like I mentioned earlier, was to, to almost uh, trade positions because there was a lot of information that both parties knew. I mean, there was, we knew a lot about the business and all of the operating parameters and market conditions and things like that. So we, to, to understand each other's position, what we did at the time was we said, let's, let's give here, here's all of our information, all of our data, all of our facts, full transparency. Now you can evaluate what that business is worth to us based upon everything we've given you and you give us all of your information. And so instead of, instead of me going in and saying, here's my position, I now can understand their position and they can understand mine. And then you can try to, to uh, bring it all together. And I, I believe that was kind of a, because of the circumstances, a unique way to approach that particular negotiation. And then the final thing was to then take all of that because now you had a better understanding of their position, your position, their facts, your facts. And then you could try to find that point of, uh, that worked out for both parties. And so from a, if you looked at the economics and other factors that were in a part of the negotiations, in this case, getting the valuations of the, the business, you were in a lot better place to do that. Unfortunately, like you, we mentioned briefly, then you got into the politics. So even though you felt like you could go through a lot of the, maybe the different factors that were important in the negotiation, and you could progress those well because you had, you had maybe some shared understandings in that, but the thing you didn't have a shared understanding on was the politics. And since say, because for most of the time it, it stayed off of the table, but when it came in to the negotiations, it made it incredibly difficult. So just, I think upon reflection, I personally, it's almost getting back to the very first question. When you, when you, when you go back and you think about how both parties conducted themselves and, and having principles to negotiate, having a framework to, to have these discussions. And uh, I think it's one of those things where you say, wow, that, that's kind of an incredible approach and it worked really well. Unfortunately, you never got the, you never got resolution. And the reason was, is the politics, particularly between the government of Venezuela and the United States at that time made it very, very difficult and probably even still today. But that to me was one of the most uh, impactful, where I learned the most, also where I'm the most proud of myself and the people that worked with me to think our way through that because of the background of how we got there, as I described it. I imagine you had to go to Venezuela as well. So how do you go to Venezuela to negotiate such an important deal? Um, you must feel the pressure. I would imagine there are um, military outside. And uh, I mean, how do you 
how do you cope with your emotions um, and 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 basically keep a cool head in such an environment? Uh, it must have been quite difficult, right? Yeah, I I had spent a lot of time in Venezuela doing business in Venezuela, and I I really loved the people of Venezuela, you know that their country and their people and what they were trying to do. Now it changed over time and, you know, it, it may be not for the best in some cases, but it, it changed over time, but going there, it was, a, you know, it was an exciting place. And in general, the people, the people that I had been friends with and business partners for a long time, I found to be just great, great people. And so, although you had to be concerned about your own personal safety and, and that on one hand, on the other hand, you were working with people that in a way you enjoyed, you enjoyed being around those people as, as, as individuals, they were, they were very, very, very good people. They just happened to live in a country that maybe operated differently than our, our company and myself personally viewed how things should be. Mm-hmm. I understand. That's a great story. So you, you've experienced a great number of cultures. This is a way of negotiating um, that is distinctively American, according to you. I know that America is a winning culture, for instance, but do you think that you, you, you negotiate differently when you're American and you, you come from that culture? It's a great question, Ludo. And I think even with your own personal background, living in different and traveling in different parts of the world, I mean, I think the first thing absolutely starts with awareness. You have to, you know, you have to look around you and and look at the, and understand, but more importantly, appreciate the cultures of wherever you are in the world. I mean, you really, you need to do that. And I think maybe one of the disadvantages of Americans and from my own experiences, sometimes I'm not sure they do that very well. I think that they see their culture and maybe want to impose their culture on other parts of the world. And uh, that's not how it should be. I mean, you need to understand the people and uh, what's important to them. And so when you get into negotiations, uh, as you probably are very, very aware, I mean, there are parts of the world where their culture is very, very consensus based. And you use the word for Americans winning. And maybe that is the dominant part of an American is to win, to make things happen, you know, go get out there and make things happen. And that doesn't mean other cultures don't want to do that. It's just how they get to that point can be dramatically different. And so I think it's very, very important to be very aware of where people come from. I think like in any discussion or negotiation, you need to at least understand and appreciate other people's background because you can't impose your will, your negotiating style on someone else. You're, you, you won't be successful. So that awareness is, is very, very critical. And, and there are probably a lot of things that are similar, you know, through, around the world. There may be some things that are similar, but there are lots of differences. And so you have to understand those differences and, and also understanding, understanding is one thing, but I think it's also important to 
appreciate, you know, why they're different and, uh, and then, and then work with people to, to try to find good, you know, places that work for everyone. It's a very important thing. I think that cultural awareness, when you go around the world, and I know we're talking a lot about negotiation, negotiating and um, in negotiations, I think that that's very, very important. And even to be honest with you in parts of the United States, you can go to one region of the United States. I would say just as an example, if you go to, if you're in Texas and you're negotiating in California, there are cultural differences between just those two states that there may be, they may, they may not be major differences, but they're probably subtle enough differences uh, because of those in the two areas that you have to be aware of those differences because it, it impacts the thinking and what's important to each party. And we, we live also in a world which is more and more regulated. Um, right. Notice, and I know that compliance is also something important uh, in the US. It, it's probably part also, probably not part of the culture, but um, if, if, you, if you negotiate and you're American, I think there's a lot of compliance also involved. And you, you, would you say that uh, it takes a bit more time sometimes, you know, to, to get all these things checked and, uh, and, and also the approval of the lawyers and, uh, and the contracts can be lengthy and stuff? Do you think that's, that's also the case for the U.S. more than in other countries? I think, you know, Ludo, I think the, there's no question the U.S. has a legal system that uh, creates a tremendous framework which I think is very, very valuable, actually, because it, it, it requires much more transparency. And, and so that that legal system is, in at least in the United States, uh, critical partly because if you violate it, the, the penalties are significant. And in other parts of the world, the good thing is most parts of the world are aware, if you're being an American, they're aware of the system. Mm-hmm. And if by following that system, it, it just has you more grounded in principles that you shouldn't, you should just honor those principles in, in the negotiation. And, and maybe in developing countries or other parts of the world where their legal system maybe isn't as advanced or progressed the same way, you, you just have to be aware of that and, and be careful of that because the people have a different uh, understanding of, you know, what you can and you can't do. So that just that part of it, I think the legal system to me is one of the good benefits of the, of the, of the Western world, not just the United States, because other parts of Europe have those have systems like that also. But I think to do things around the world, advancement and development of legal systems around the world will help in doing business for everyone you know it's like my example that you asked earlier about you know one of the most kind of either difficult or memorable negotiations was in a country that's legal system probably was in, in at the time when i was involved in that you know turned upside down because of the type of government and that and and you can see what's happened and how difficult it is for other countries to do business when you don't have certain conditions that the legal system can help protect, help protect everyone really. 
Yeah, fair enough. So you're still praised for your great work at Tesoro. Uh, you were named uh, one of the world's best uh, CEOs by the Harvard Business Review in 2018. Sorry. Um, what do you attribute this personal success to? Yeah, so the company was in, in the uh, energy business. It was a refining, marketing, logistics company, just a U.S., mainly a U.S. company from an operating standpoint. We did we bought and sold uh, crude oil and gasoline, diesel and that around the world, but it was from an operating standpoint, was a U.S. company. And at the time, uh, when I took over the company as the CEO, uh, there was just a lot of work to do to kind of turn the company around. And, and in, over, in a relatively short period of time, we had great success doing it. And I would attribute that to, to three things. One, we had a very clear kind of vision of where we wanted to take the company and was able to develop a strategy that people understood and was incredibly impactful. The second thing, we created a culture where we, we, had, a, we had a lot of good people. We brought in a lot of uh, great people into the company and people were excited about where the, the company was going. And more importantly, it was incredibly challenging. I fundamentally believe that most people, probably everywhere in the world, actually, one thing that they have in common is people like to be challenged. And to be challenged, there's degrees of challenge for all of us. Some people maybe don't like a lot of challenge. And some people like to be pushed to the brink of failure. But if you can create an environment that's challenging and, and people are free, they have the space to go and make things, make things happen, make good things happen and work together, then I think people can accomplish great things by being able to do that. You have to believe in the people and, and, and what they can do. And you can create, if, you have, if they know where they're going and you have a, a place where, you, where everyone works that allows them to you know, rise to the occasion, then I think you can, uh, you can uh, accomplish a lot of good things. And then you just have to, you, you have to be ambitious. You, you, your company and the people in the company, they, they, they want to go back what you said earlier about Americans, they want to win. I mean, I think that's really, really important. And in this particular case, they're not, what they're beating, I guess, is maybe the competition in a way but they want to win. They want to be successful. And if you, if you work to help them be successful, then you can have a great outcome. I think that's just maybe, at least from my own experience, that's definitely the American the way America is. I think people have such a strong will to win that harnessing that will to win and do great things and be focused on what's important will take, take the business a long ways. Do you also think that luck can be provoked? I mean, there's always part, luck is always, uh, always part of, uh, of a success in a way. Uh, do you think that it can be provoked and it's a question of mindset and, uh, and, and, and attitude and, uh, and, and challenge and, uh, and this kind of thing? Well, we, all, we live in a very dynamic world. And in a dynamic world, things are changing all the time and there can be good things like say if you're in a particular industry 
that industry may have some good tailwinds that take the industry there. And so you can call that luck. You happen to be part of that industry when things were going well for whatever reason, the factors that drive success in that business. And so I, I don't know if provoked, I would say that by being out in that business and, and, and finding opportunities and, and dealing with the challenges, sometimes you're going to be lucky. So you, you, uh, I think it's, it's nice when you're lucky. It's also nice to know when you're lucky and take advantage of it. You know, don't do good things to, to be able to get there. And there's no question we all, we probably all need some of that. And we all, we all need to be humble enough to recognize that it, it was sometimes luck that got us to where we were and not just thinking that the company or, or you as a leader did everything and nothing else mattered. That's not, that's probably not the case. But so I think just the dynamic nature of the world that we live in will provide some ups and downs. And when you find those ups, you can call them luck, but just make the most of them. Fair enough. How do you prepare yourself for important negotiations? Do you do anything? Do you have any, any ritual? Do you have, uh, you were talking about that negotiation, important negotiation in Venezuela. I mean, you were talking about self-awareness. Do you prepare uh, for this negotiation a certain way? Yeah, I, I believe that not in negotiating whatever you're trying to negotiate or just doing things, I think there are certain things that are really valuable that help you have a better chance for being successful. For example, I think, first of all, you have to have strong values, whether it be integrity, you need to respect people. Like we've talked a little bit in some of the prior questions about the culture, you need that awareness. But I, I believe that you have to have certain values that are, you just, it's just what they are. And uh, they're, they're just, you just, you don't compromise those ever. Um, then you also need to have certain principles of what you're trying to achieve, depending upon the particular negotiation. If it's, if you're trying to solve a problem, like my example earlier on Venezuela, where that, I mean, the assets have been expropriated by the government, what you were trying, you're solving a problem, or you could be trying to capture an opportunity. But, but if you have certain principles that what's really, really important and, and everyone that's working with you and the negotiation, they understand those principles. And then in some cases, I think it's important for the other party to understand those principles. So however you choose to do that, I mentioned earlier in that one example, by creating a framework for the negotiations, because it was that approach was due to a specific circumstance, but the principles became very, very uh, transparent. So they were kind of said, these are the principles. And, and I just give you an example of one of the principles at that time. One of the principles was, was that once we agreed to something, that we would document it and we would be, we keep it there. We, so that we didn't say, well, I think you said this and I think you agreed this. No, we've agreed to this particular point 
and we're going to document it. Now, in that case, that wasn't for political reasons, that wasn't acceptable. But the principles aren't aren't uh, very uh, complicated. But I think it's important to say I have very strong values. I have principles that are very much a function of what you're trying to do and then conduct yourself in that way. I think being very principle-based in, in your negotiating, in your decision-making, and in your approach with other people gives you the best chance for success. It's and that's how I prepare myself. So I would, I would think about, you know, the values never change. So it's not like you're saying, oh, my only my values on this particular problem are one, two, three. Those always stay the same. What's important is everyone in, if, you know, usually there could be a lot of people involved. Everyone shares those same values. And then the principles can be different depending on what you're trying to do. And so I think it's the preparation is thinking about what those are and then kind of conducting your business that way on a very principle-based approach. Yeah, so preparation seems to be quite important and you seem to, I mean, give importance to preparation. Mm-hmm. It's true there's a number of people who um, thinks they rely on their expertise or their experience and just go to negotiation thinking right. they can solve any problem because they have that experience and expertise. But what you're saying is that probably it's not because you have this, you have to prepare and think about your values, think uh, ahead of a negotiation, um, think about your principles, and uh, and yeah, think ahead. Because I think, I think what happens, Ludo, is that uh, it, it can be different depending on who you're, you could be dealing with uh, someone in, in the U.S. government, or you could be dealing with like someone in, someone in Vietnam, you could be dealing with another company. So I think it is a little bit different. There may be differences. They may be subtle sometimes, but they are probably very important. And being very principle-based, I think, helps in, in what you do to go forward. You, you've been a busy man, an extensive traveler, even if now you probably traveled a bit less like everyone else. Um, you have, you've had great pressure and accepted great responsibility. Um, what daily routines have you developed to keep on track and maintain this peak performance and balance in your life? You were talking, um, I mean, earlier before we start the interview, um, there were a few activities that uh, you like, uh, you, you, you enjoy, but I'll let you answer. Yeah, I, probably two things that I think are important. I think one is the, for as an individual, just your, your physical and mental well-being, you should just take really good care of yourself. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, respect, you know, and respecting other people. You actually need to respect yourself. It's true. And you need to respect yourself as far as how you take care of yourself. And, you know, everyone's pretty much aware of that, but just being, being active as a person and how, what you, how you eat and how you take care of your mind by learning and just engaging, I think is very important. So that individual part about the physical and mental part is something that you just can't neglect. 
And it's really important to, I think, like I said, just respect yourself as a, as a human being and take good care of yourself in every way that you can. And, and that takes time. It takes, it takes a, a, a desire to want to be able to do that. And, uh, and just doing it, you know, taking really good care of yourself. I think the second part of it is how you do things. And what I found, what I always did was, and this maybe sounds a little kind of corny, but with a friend of mine, we developed this a long time ago. We called it kind of a, what we called it was like sourcing yourself. So you kind of look and say, what is it that you, how do you want to source yourself on things that you want to do? And when I did, when I do that, and I do it when I'm involved in different things is uh, I look at all the different groups of people that I'm going to be working with. So if you're the CEO of a company, you may say one of the groups of people that I want to source myself with so that I know how I'm going to be with those people is like the board of directors. Another may be the employees of the company. Another may be the communities. But I think if you think about how you want to, to source yourself with what you're trying to do, then it, it, I think it just helps you out a lot better. And, and what I tried to always do was have very specific things that I wanted to achieve when I called, when I was talking about trying to source myself to do something. And I kind of think out like, what, what would it look like if everyone was successful some point in time to uh, achieve whatever you're working on? And so this, and I just call it sourcing. I've been doing it probably for probably two to three decades, some, something like that when I first started doing this. Actually, I lived in Europe uh, at the time when I really started looking at maybe how I am as a leader and how I want to live my life. And, and, and then some different stages in my life. I just did this. I just sat down about three months ago and said, here I am today in my life. How do I want to source myself for the rest of my life? That's what I did. I just said, what is it I want to do? What are really the most important things to me? And you know what's interesting, Ludo, when you do that is, then you go back and say, if that's true, are you doing those things today? Is that what, you know, and in my own, and I'll tell you using myself as an example, what I always find is the things that I, I think are the most important to me I don't spend as much time on them as I want to and as I need to because other things get in the way. And so therefore you have to be more one conscious and, and more deliberate to say, I got to get back on what I want to do, how I've sourced myself, you know, as a person. So that's how I kind of prepare long, kind of a long answer to it. And, uh, but I found it to, I found it to work pretty well, at least how I try to do things. It's great. It's great insight. Do you, I mean, do you wake up every day at the same time? Do you take your coffee with your newspaper? Do you have this kind of routine? Um, are there any activities you you uh, you you try to avoid uh, because you want time for yourself? Are there any things that you do every day like this? Uh, the, these small routines that um, uh, probably not something very important, but but uh, probably important for you because that's a, that's a kind of a ritual. Um. I don't like routines that are every day. 
and that and this may sound a little bit crazy, but even driving to work, I don't like driving the same way every day. I've got to go a different way. I don't know. I I feel like having a real defined routine, it's kind of creeps, puts puts a you get into a rut. And I, I know that sounds kind of like uh, a little crazy that someone says they don't even want to drive to work the same way. But honestly, I don't like to do that. I like to, it's not like I change every single day. That's not possible, but I can't just say, Oh shoot, I've been driving this way for the last six years, every single day. I don't do that. I find a different way and drive a different way, mainly because you can, if you can then look around, you know, if you're driving, if you do the same thing every day, if you have a routine that you kind of, miss out sometimes what's going on around you. So you got to break out of that. I'm not, a, I, I like more, if I had chaos, I'd prefer that over routine. I like, I like chaos. Actually, I like lots of things and I just feel that you got to step up your game. You, you don't want to be in constant chaos. I'm not saying that, but I, if I had a choice between on a spectrum of a routine to chaos, I would want to be past the middle of it and, moving towards chaos than trying to get myself back into a routine. That's just how I am. Yeah. And you, you can push yourself and probably achieve yeah. That's probably what you're saying. Yeah. And my last question for you would be, uh, what are the three flows that a negotiator uh, should avoid according to you? If you had three. Yeah. Well, the, I think that's a great question. The, uh, if I look on, back and say what are things that you would really want to avoid and i guess i would absolutely try to avoid these things myself and if people were asking me for my advice i would also share them with them i think the first thing and we talk and i think we've probably talked about all these mm -hmm. so far in our discussions but i think it's important maybe to come back and and highlight them the first one was to avoid is avoid not being prepared. We talked about this just a few minutes ago. I think that's really important. If you think that you know it so well and you don't, it's a no brainer and you can just go in and do it how you think you're going to do it. That, that could be a mistake. So I think the first thing is avoid not being prepared. The second thing and, and uh, that we've also talked about is a little bit about the, when we talked about like maybe cultural awareness and things, mm -hmm. I think you avoid not taking time to both understand and appreciate the other party, whoever it is, an individual or someone in the government or whatever, but take time to understand uh, where they come from, what's important to them. Listen, you know, listen to them and, and just think about it. And you don't want to impose your will upon someone and think, and think that you can just, those things aren't going to be, they may be important to them, but they're not important to me. That type of an attitude, I think, is not going not gonna to work. So the second fly would say is, is make sure you avoid uh, thinking you can do that. So don't understand. And then I think the third thing is, like I said earlier, is I believe, and, and 
this is maybe for more important negotiations because there can be, as you know, we can negotiate lots of little things every day with our family. And I mean, there's always trade-offs on everything. Your as well. <laughs> yeah. And that, but I think the other thing is uh, you need to understand the, uh, what is it that would be avoid getting into a position where you don't understand what a good deal is for everyone. You may understand what it is for yourself. And mm-hmm. you gave the example of like an Americans about winning mm-hmm. and if you approach something where you say this is, and you have this view of I'm going to win. And uh, I think you need to avoid that. You need to kind of say what, if there's an outcome, what, where is an outcome that is going to be acceptable to both parties, but don't avoid thinking that your outcome is the only outcome. And if that doesn't happen, it's not going to work because you have to be willing to, it takes, you know, it's not a single uh, discussion here. You're, you, you need to get both, both parties to find that place where it works. I didn't say win, but where it works, recognizing there has to be maybe some give and take. And when that doesn't happen, when you can't find that place, then you're not going to, that means you're not going to get to where you need to get to. But the flaws, I think, your, your question's a, a very, very good question because I think it's so easy and maybe maybe as an American to think I'm going to win. And that's all there is to it. You know, if, I, if, uh, if I'm going to win, then this is all that matters. This is what has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, you know, I don't, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't work that way, to be honest with you. You've got to understand that. And so probably, you know, your question earlier about the, uh, uh, how do you prepare and things like that? I think an awareness of the flaws are, are, is really, really important because you, if you think, if you disagree with those flaws, then we'll see how successful the person will be. We'll see if it works out. Yeah, it's about win-win and not win-lose. That's basically what you were saying before. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's, these are great, uh, great insights, and I'm sure that uh, our uh, audience is gonna is gonna like this um, and hopefully apply this in uh, in their in their negotiations so now I have some speed round questions for you um, and uh, and you have to answer uh, okay the choice um, you can elaborate if you want to um, I hope uh, I hope you will find them interesting so tie or no tie absolutely no tie <laughs> <laughs> logic or gut feeling more gut feeling okay um you can you can explain huh, if you want uh, no problem um utah jazz or grizzlies lakers lakers <laughs> <laughs> long time lakers fan okay <laughs> good back riding or fishing 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 whiskey or wine a nice red wine, preferably Californian. Okay. Sorry, sorry from your background, but I love nice California red wines. Pinot from the Napa Valley, I would imagine. Yeah. Bangkok or Singapore? You were talking about cows and, and order. That's a good example. 
yeah, depends on what I want to do. They're both <laughs> both interesting places. Very different, you know, you're right. You have to choose one. Well, it depends on what day. Okay. Today. <laughs> what about today? <laughs> Singapore. 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 Tradition or innovation? Innovation. If you were a song, what would it be? If I were a song, it would be about tomorrow. Okay. What, where, where are we going? Okay. Where, the song would be about, as a world, where, where are we going? Okay, well, you're going to like the next question. Would you travel in the past or in the future? Future. Okay. Why is that? Just change. I like change. I like different things. So always to see something, something very different to make you look at the world differently, to make you think about it differently, and make you see kind of what's possible no matter where you, where you are. Like you're in Vietnam, I'm in Texas, and kind of looking out what's possible. Right. Would you prefer to have dinner with Donald Trump or Barack Obama? Um, neither one. <laughs> okay. Other people. I would pre prefer other people. All right. Okay. Fair enough. I'm not going to ask you to choose on that one. Okay. Well, that was, uh, that was our interview. Thank you very much, Craig. Uh, for this great interview and uh, for your insights again. Um, I wish you the best of luck uh, in the US um, and I hope to have the pleasure of meeting you again. Well, not again, but once, uh, maybe over a nice uh, bottle of... Uh, of That's wine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ludo. Nice, nice spending some time with you today and good luck with everything that you do also. Thank you. All the best. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this interview. There are more coming with different CEOs, with different backgrounds, stories. Stay tuned. You can follow us on www.ludovic.online. See you soon. <laughs>